JV Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 68 of the Insured Tech Geek Podcast, talking about data-driven reinsurance with Nat Manning from Kettle. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about a technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Spooky Halloween. Right, one of my favorite times of year. As we record this, it's Friday, October 29th, 2021, and it is Halloween. Hopefully, your kids are out trick or treating and not uh, trying to do it virtually over Zoom. Lame, go get some candy, go get some candy, go have some fun. It, it, you know, even if you're, you know, if, if you're, if you're COVID cautious, just you know, you, you got a great excuse to wear, uh, what is it, Freddy Krueger had the mask, or Jason, who, who was it that had the big full face mask that just works wonderfully for COVID. it was jason yeah Yeah, it was jason there you go so uh if that's what you got to do then uh put the jason mask on and go trick-or-treating man it's a great time of year i i've got my costume i'll go ahead and announce what it is i went ahead went now top gun was supposed to be out by now the damn thing keeps getting delayed but it's okay i'm maverick from top gun i'm a pilot do like to fly airplanes and uh and so i thought it was an appropriate uh an appropriate costume Rob, are you dressing up or are you just going to go in 100% dad wear? Uh, yeah, no, great question. Good to see you, James. And um, so so here's the deal. So I, I do not dress up every year. I just do the dad thing. And I have made a deal with my kids uh, over many years. So my kids are now 20, 16, and 11. So they're older. So I've told them if they can all agree on a theme, I will dress up. Uh, so I thought my family would make, for instance, an awesome Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, and Princess Leia, and I would be you know, honored to be Chewbacca, right? Or a C-3PO. I think that'd be perfect. Um, we've talked about Pokemon. We've talked about all sorts of, and, and they can never agree, the three of them, on a theme. And, oh. and now that my kids are older, um, it's only my 11-year-old that's going out. So unfortunately, uh, that that dream of like, hey, we'll all get on the same page and we'll go all go out as uh, a, is a family with a theme, is uh, it's dead, man. It's sad. Ah, dream is dead. So sad. It's okay. I thought that would be enough incentive, you know, see dad know. in a sleep well, costume, mom agreed you know, my, to it. You know, we could even get the pup pup dressed up, but uh, yeah, they're, they're individual, you know, yeah. prioritize themselves over the team here. Yeah. And they got it. They got, that's it. They got to learn the lesson. You know, my, uh, my 14 year old now, she, she's pretty independent, likes to do her own thing, uh, would dress up, but we always went out and, and, and you know, I always picked my stuff. My, my 11 year olds always, always wanted to match this year is the first, oh, this is, this is so sad. This year, she's not matching with me. She's matching with her special friend from school. He's mm. he asked her if that he asked her if they could match, and so she's matching with him instead of me. <laughs> oh, that's tough, my oh, dad. God, but we she and I she and I matched she and I matched costumes for the last eight years. Like, I mean, <laughs> so we we always went out together. So I'm Top Gun. She's a Harry Potter character. With us today, we've got Nat Manning uh, from Kettle. Nat, are you dressing up for Halloween? Yeah, yeah, I am. And and good. Uh, I've got a three and a half year old, so we are doing a family a family look. 
guys have ever read the books uh elephant and piggy by uh by mo williams for the little guy ones uh our three and a half year old loves them so uh awesome we are pig elephant and uh and pigeon that is amazing so good job dad awesome have fun uh on on that one trick-or-treating is so much fun first two years of trick-or-treating my oldest one just cried the entire time and once she turned three she saw the point and uh she got with the candy racket and uh she she started (laughs) enjoying it uh my younger one who's now 11 has always loved uh, trick-or-treat so we hope you out there in listener land are enjoying by the time this airs it'll be after halloween hope you enjoyed past tense halloween and uh and and have a have a wonderful time there before we get started with our interview don't forget you can subscribe to the insure tech geek podcast remember of course we broadcast this on video on facebook twitter and linkedin but uh and vimeo uh you can subscribe by texting geek out to 66866 you can also you know just go to our website at jbknowledge.com but uh, again just text geek out to 66866 back to our interview our special guest with us this week nat manning from kettle he's co-founder and chief operating officer over at kettle for your Reference, if you want to watch the or look at the website while you're listening, it's Our Kettle, O-U-R-K-E-T-T-L-E, OurKettle.com. Nat, thank you so much for joining us. Where are you joining us from today? Uh, I'm in the Philly area right now. I've been uh, in the Bay Area for the last 11 years and uh, recently uh, made my way over here to Philly, which is where I grew up. Awesome. So, uh, Pat's, Geno's, or other? <laughs> no comment. I don't want to get myself in trouble with my, oh, my new, my new, uh, my new pick a lane. <laughs> pick a lane. I'm a, I'm a Geno's for sure. Geno's. I love Geno's. Their bread is better. I like I'll give a you a good nod here. I'll give you a good nod. Yeah, I, uh. I like a provolone wit. A provolone wit. And uh, I yeah. always bring my cash. I order quickly and then I shut up like they want me to. Going out to eat in Philly uh, at any type of uh, food place like that is uh, is like the opposite of going out to eat. Here in Texas, they're like, oh, y'all, come on in. Let me tell you about the menu. What do you... Let's tell, let me tell you all the great things we got. And and, and at Pat's or Gino's, like, what do you want? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, we got we got lots of people. Come on, what do you want? No cash only. What do you want? Point the menu. I mean, it's like I remember I said, well, tell me like what's in the what's in the what's in the pizza. What's, I'm sorry, this was so funny because I was like, what's in what's in the pizza cheesecake? She goes, pizza sauce. You want it? <laughs> I mean, just I mean. No regard for customer service, but phenomenal cheesesteaks. Indeed. Phenomenal cheesesteaks. So you're back in Philadelphia. It uh, sounds like you were Philadelphia born and raised on the playground is where you spent most of your days chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, and shooting some people outside of the school. Did a couple of guys, they were up to no good, started making trouble in your neighborhood? Yeah, so, something like that. Did you get in one little fight and your mom got scared and said, you're moving the auntie and uncle? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just totally got on a Will Smith sidetrack there. So did when did when how, how long did you live in Philly? I grew up uh, outside of Philly. was here until I was 18 and then, and then off. Like King of Prussia outside Philly or like where? A little farther, uh, Westchester area. Nice. Okay. So you go, you go get your undergrad in religion and philosophy studies at Brown. Uh, excellent school, Brown. Thanks. What led you to, to studying religion and philosophy? I mean, particularly, I mean, I, it was about the big questions in life. Like that's near in college. I want to understand, you know, very driven to kind of Eastern philosophy and, uh, and existentialism was just like, why are we here? You know, if we're, if we're here, mm-hmm. might as well ask the big questions. Yeah. Why are we here and what are we doing? What does it all mean? Exactly. What happens when we die? Yeah. Those are the big ones. Those, those are the big ones. It's like, <laughs> you know, people always ask, like, my favorite two topics are religion and politics, and uh, which, you know, makes me a ball of fun at a party, right? Um, <laughs> totally. And, <laughs> and there goes and, the hour we can talk about. There insurance. goes the hour, <laughs> folks. <laughs> and then and, and half your friends. And, um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I always uh, wondered why it, they were such hot button topics, you know, like, because like, for me, they're not, I just enjoy the top. It's, for me, it's the two most important questions who governs you while you're here, politics, and what happens to you when you die? Religion, right? Like, like what's the what's this really all about? What's the end game about? And and of course, they're the two touchiest topics that no one wants to really talk about. And we're not going to talk about them today. We're going to talk about technology. While you're doing this, you did this environmental and, and international environmental policy and sustainable design. So it looks like you got like a, a bachelor's and a master's kind of around the, the same time. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically, uh, the long story is you study philosophy and say, why are we here? I actually ended up living in a in a Zen monastery for three months in in Japan. Cool. Spent a lot of time in the cushion. You do that. Yeah, uh, I've kind of recently, right before that, you know, essentially took a class in environmental science, uh, learned about climate change, watched the inconvenient truth around that time, sat on that cushion for three months and said, This is the big problem that is facing humanity over the next, you know, hundred years. This is collective action. How do we how do we solve this? And it's not looking good. And the science is the science. And uh Came off that coach and said, I want to go dedicate the rest of my my life to figuring out if we can try to turn around climate change as a as a Yeah. Awesome. Humanity. Awesome. So you jumped in immediately with the Clinton Foundation from 08 to 2011 as a regional analyst and a financial finance associate. What was that like? Uh, and what were you really working on there? Yeah, we were essentially working on, I mean, the, the theme was really clear. It was if you could make clean tech cheaper than dirty tech. Um, we don't have a climate change problem anymore. So it was essentially, how do you go about making uh, the it was mitigation? How do we actually reduce carbon uh, and make uh, dirty or clean tech a lot cheaper? So we were working on essentially as consultants, you know, my my bosses, my folks were all kind of like McKinsey, BCG type folks. And, you know, one of the big projects I worked on was the clean energy plan for for Malaysia, for the, the, uh, for the energy uh, department there. Uh, we were working on how to build financial uh, instruments to reduce the cost of building large solar installations in Australia. Uh, so I was getting to work kind of all throughout Asia Pacific uh, in that time, worked on an off-grid solar project in India. And it was all about how do you make different ways to to make clean tech cheaper. Very cool. And then from there, you went through uh, First Solar. You were director of, a, of as an energy and lead consultant. Then you were CEO of Fellow Robots for a couple of years. Then you went to work as a special advisor on open data at USAID, the White House. That's pretty cool. Was, again, that kind of a continuation of all of this, uh, of this, this trajectory in your life when you worked at USAID? Yeah, essentially two things happened. So I was working on trying to turn climate change around, reducing carbon mitigation, right? Clean tech. Also was working internationally. Came back to the U.S. in 2013. 11, uh, went to one of these programs in the Bay. I always had an entrepreneurial streak, always wanted to start a company. Starting a clean tech company is very capital intensive, you know, still a young guy, got more into software, uh, moved to the Bay, uh, which was you know, obviously is San Francisco Bay Area is like the, particularly at that time, the hot, but hot spot for, for starting companies in the world. Um, so in Silicon Valley and, uh, and the other thing that was happening was, it was very clear that Unfortunately, we were kind of losing this battle on, on carbon mitigation and started, came across this company that was doing incredible work around first response. Uh, it's building, it's, it's called Ushahidi. Uh, it went on and, and you can see it in there as well. Uh, ended up running that organization, but uh, joined the organization. Uh, and what we did was make the largest open source software platform for a community-based crisis response in the world. Uh, and I was just really taken with the team, doing amazing stuff. I loved the open source software, the collaborative nature of it. And uh, so joined that team. 
worked there for about a year, and then uh, applied to this new program called the Presidential Innovation Fellowship. Uh, this was in 2012, 2013, and, and ended up getting it. And so I went and was a special advisor, part of this PIF program, Presidential Innovation Fellowship program, uh, in the Office of Science Technology Policy in the White House, and uh, working specifically on open data for humanitarian response. So again, how do we open up government data? At that time, you know, we built up data.gov, uh, you know, the U.S. government, NASA, NOAA has made all this incredible data available in machine-readable format. But there's all this other cool stuff at the U.S. government that is sitting in PDF files. And so we said, hey, uh, how do we actually bring some technical knowledge into uh, the U.S. Gov at the time and, uh, and start making this available for, for private sector? And between those two jobs, who is it that gets really interested in data, uh, in particularly humanitarian crisis data, is insurance companies. So started having a bunch of insurance companies reach out, get interested in the data, be say, hey, could we get that? And uh, both from Mushahidi and, and the US government uh, data that we were opening up. And, uh, and that just set me down a rabbit hole of obsession with, with insurance uh, at that time. So that started my, my insurance passion. So I was working really on crisis response. Um, there's a couple other stories in there. I mean, I was in, in FEMA during when Sandy hit the, the Eastern Seaboard mm. and kind of saw what happened there. And that really was a turning point in my, my history as well and, and story. So drove, drove me, I basically, that happened and saw what happens. And, and uh, I spent like three days literally sleeping on the floor in FEMA. Um, and uh, I was like, wow, you know, I, I, I always thought about this way. I had this kind of moment where if you, if you kind of graph suffering over time uh, in, a, in a crisis, right, you have this big spike at the beginning. Uh, and the first two weeks, it's all about how do you, how do you save lives? How do you triage? How do you, you know, get, get people the help they need? But then it, you know, it kind of dives down people, people sort of, it's a more of a stasis, uh, the news media and, and media move on, but then you have this long tail of people just getting their feet back under them. And it's really just them and their insurance companies for years. And, you know, it's like kind of this realization that the suffering under the long tail might be just as high as that suffering under those first two weeks. And so if you could improve the insurance industry, you can actually dramatically reduce human suffering from, you know, these, these acts of God, this, these crises that, yeah. That is. Absolutely. I mean, insurance serves a pretty deep and wide social good, right? It's a exactly. It is. It is a. It is a safety net that uh, that protects a lot of people. Rob and I have had a lot of conversations about that. So let's let's take you up to today. What led to the founding of Kettle, and what does it do? Yeah. So Kettle, we're a reinsure tech, as we might call it. Uh, we or the safety net below the safety net, and we use advanced machine learning to better understand risk and and price it as such, uh, and. And what we do is uh, we use machine learning models to actually do the, the actuarial predictions. And then we, we sell reinsurance. We are a reinsurer, uh, but a tech-first reinsurer. The founding of the story, as you kind of heard a little bit about my background, I got, I got obsessed with insurance. Uh, as we were talking about, I, was like, I basically found it this, this quite beautiful, elegant thing, something that most people don't use uh, to describe insurance. But what are we really doing? It was like, okay, as as society, we are all pooling all of our money together and basically saying, hey, man, if your house burns down, I got your back. I'll, I'll throw you $1 towards, you know, that. And, and, and if all of us do that together, we'll, uh, we'll make you whole. And same thing, if it happens to me, you'll, you'll do the same thing. And that's, that was this kind of incredible moment. It was like, wow, this is, this is really a tremendous thing that's allowing millions, billions of humans to cooperate at large scale. And that's, that's incredible financially. And it's really good for the economy as well. You don't have to keep all that money sitting in a bank. Um, instead, you can go put it to work. So we got totally obsessed, realized insurance was also like the OG data scientists, had this technological background. 
but I had no insurance background. I came from technology. And so I, I was just kind of talking everyone's ear off about it for years saying, I want to figure out how to start this. A couple of classic things happened. Uh, one, as my wife was like, nah, get on with it already. Quit your job and go start a company if you're going to do it. Stop talking about it. And two, I was talking to a friend um, who's a designer. He's got you know blonde hair down to his shoulders, lives in Hawaii, got off a certain, the coolest guy you've ever seen kind of thing. And uh, talked his ear off about insurance and he laughs and he's like, nah, man, do I, do I look like someone who wants to talk about insurance for an hour? Um, but let me, uh, let me introduce you to this guy, Andrew. He's, uh, he's the only other person I know that's made insurance sound interesting. Uh, so uh, you guys should meet. And he introduced us. This was you know three or four years ago now. And sure enough, Andrew and I just just hit it off. Uh, and he was completely brilliant, knew the whole space inside and out, had started off slinging policies from Allstate and moved all the way up to being you know the head of technology and digital at, at Argo Group, a big public uh, reinsurance and specialty reinsurance out of Bermuda. So knew the whole thing. And we had a blast. And then in summer of 2019, said, hey, man, you want to we want to quit our fancy jobs and uh, start a company instead. Seems like a great idea. So uh, uh, and he said, yeah. So we we got to work started building up the team. And, uh, you know, like any good startup, iterated a bunch of bad ideas for a year, bootstrapped and self-financed, and then uh, came across the the realization that essentially climate change, right, was there's been a 3x increase in billion dollar catastrophes over the last 10 years in in the US. That's led to this 60% drop on return on equity for the reinsurance industry, because what is reinsurance? It is ensuring catastrophic risk, right? Not the, your house has got robbed, your roof is leaking. It is like, there's a giant wildfire, there's a giant hurricane. That's the, the job of reinsurance. And those are being exacerbated by climate change. And so if you're in the business of reinsuring catastrophic risk, you're having a tough time over the last 10 years. And that the industry has basically used in the same exact models and, and process of, of understanding this risk that they were 50 years ago. It's, it's kind of classic stochastic modeling. And if you're trying to say, hey, I'm going to look at the data from the last 100 years and say this spot has burned down twice in the last 100 years, therefore it's, or once, let's say, make the numbers easy, uh, it's got a, a one in 100 shot of burning down next year. That's just not the truth anymore because it's, it's right there in the, in the word, climate changed. Um, so you can't use the same data from the last 100 years to try to understand the next 10 anymore. And, and so you need a much better Model. Yeah, like what's what? What does a hundred year flood mean when three of them happen in ten years? Right. Exactly. Like, exactly. And you just have to kind of look out your window and and see that. All right. And uh, and so if we can drive cars uh, with with AI and reland spaceships back onto Earth, we should be using these tools to better understand risk. That's awesome, Rob. Yeah, now I, I love your story. I love your background, and and uh, we kind of have a. A shared passion in this space because uh, you know for many years at USA, um, I led the underwriting team that that managed uh, some of the underwriting guidelines. And you know, I would always tell people, we're not making a decision today on whether we can profitably insure this risk. But the retention was so high at USA that there was a fifty fifty chance that you know we'd still be on that same risk thirty years from today. And so I need to think about you know is this an acceptable risk thirty years from now, not just today? And that led to a lot of these conversations about climate change, quite frankly, that a lot of you know executives weren't really ready to have, I guess I would say, you know, they were really worried about you know, that year's profitability, maybe a year or two out and led me to to do some modeling in this space and, and wildfire and others talk to some of the uh, cat models, talk to some of the, the, the reinsurer folks as well. So uh, very, um, I share your passion on this topic. And, you know, you touched on this, so I'd love to have you expand and talking to some of the scientists that I had talked to at the time, they basically said, 
hey, the the risk profile for something like wildfire between now and 2050, that's baked in. Like we actually can't change that profile and that risk, what it, it, it's going to look like. You know, what we're talking about in terms of climate change, the Paris Agreement, things like that, you know, would influence the risk from 2050 to 2100. And, you know, so they showed me statistical charts and, and, and paths and pretty good estimates of how that the exposure was going to change over the next 30 years that were eye-opening and, and things that I was not seeing in the reinsurance space and the, the traditional catastrophe model space. So, you know, this whole idea of modeling, not just the catastrophes, and, and of course, wildfire is a lot more difficult than things like hurricanes. Nobody's actively putting out the hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's actively putting out the earthquake the way they are with, with wildfire. It, there's so many more variables involved. And then you add this climate layer on top. It makes it exceedingly challenging. I just would love to um, have you kind of expand a little bit on you know what makes climate change in particular um, really difficult uh, from an insurance perspective and what are you doing to kind of, I guess, provide us with those better tools that you described? Yeah, absolutely. So our first product to market is around around wildfire, right? Particularly in California, but expanding to the to the West. Uh, and you're right, it's it's hard to model. Uh, and, and some of, and then particularly like, how are we thinking about how climate change affects this over time? Really challenging because as I said, you know, if you're just looking on the historical data, like it's, you're only going to have a certain data set. Now, uh, and it's right there in the change, like how are you predicting what's happening in the future? So you got you to gotta bake a lot of that in. The value, so the way we go about it, the one of the values of, of using uh, machine learning uh, in this case, and so machine learning is essentially is artificial intelligence. And what you're doing is you're training uh, a model off of a ton of data and they're running simulation after simulation to try to predict what the factors are that are uh, going to create a, a fire. Now, here are a couple important things to know. So wildfires. So they're obviously getting a lot more. Everyone reads the news. You can see it, right? There was, there was a bunch of damage 2016, 17, 18, and 2020. Let's use 2020 as an example. 4% of the state burned out of 100 million acres, ton of space. But now looking at 11,466 structures burned out of 14 million. So less than 0.1% of the structures actually burned down. Now, there's smoke for a lot of the season. It's not that's not enjoyable, but like from a damage point of view, you're looking at and not making light of 11,466 people even losing their homes and businesses. But it is actually quite a small statistical representation compared to what it might feel like in the space, right? That the whole state's burning down all the time. What we're doing in the models uh, is we now have over 30 years of satellite imagery and longer than that of, of weather. Uh, right. And so these machine learning models are looking at uh, what what is causing a fire to start and what is and, and then how is it spreading? And the other thing to know is that those those 11,000 homes uh, that I mentioned, 98 uh, percent of the damage caused was caused by 14 fires. However, there are over 10,000 wildfires a year in California. So what's really happening is it's like, which are the ones that are going to get really big and really dangerous, right? Which are the ones that are going to get out of control? Because we're actually really good at putting out fires. There's tons of them and we put most of them out. Now, this is actually a perfect system for machine learning because you have a good data set. Okay, what, what, why is it that these 9,986 fires went out and didn't cause any damage? And what was it that caused these 14 to get completely out of hand and become a Caldor fire, you know, et cetera, tubs? 
And so what the, mo the models are doing are looking at this data and saying, hey, I noticed that fires start all the time right next to this gray pixelated line, aka a road. Uh, and that could be because that's where the electrical wires are, people throwing trash or cigarettes out the window, et cetera. But you know, if it's right next to a, this giant other gray thing, a Walmart parking lot, the fire goes out, nothing happens. But if a fire starts over here and you've got 20 miles of this dried out trees, right, canopy, and you have no access into this area, there's no roads to go put this stuff out. And it's the wind is blowing 90 miles an hour because it's that time of the year in the Santa Ana winds are there and it's October and it hasn't rained for eight months. Now you've got a, that perfect storm, all, all of the, the variables aligning in the wrong direction. And you have a situation where you're like, this is a high chance place for a fire start. And then once it does start, this is where it's going to spread. And that's how, you know, the models are essentially thinking. And to give you an idea of just the other part, the value of using these kind of tools versus the old tools as you might know in the space, typically what you would do is you run 100,000 simulations on historical wildfire data set to do a, a prediction. That's, that's kind of like the norm. It's called stochastic modeling or randomized modeling. What's the one in 250 chance that this spot's going to burn down? We run roughly 600 billion simulations per turn of our model versus 100,000. So it's just a whole nother level of brute force to understand every possibility of what could happen. So let's dive on the technology for a second, because that requires a massive amount of computing power. So cloud computing, I'm assuming, is one of the key drivers that's enabling this, because you can spin up far, far, far more servers to do all this modeling. Is that correct? It's 100% correct. Yeah. Our, after people, the next biggest bill is AWS. So. Yeah. So you're, you're in AWS on Amazon Web Services. And are you using a third-party uh, machine learning model? Did you start with a third-party model and develop your own? What, where are you at with machine learning? We have developed our own. Uh, we tested against uh, third-party models like, like the open-source ones, like SGBoost, Random Forest, uh, all the time, as well as kind of the storm is just normal stochastic models. Uh, and then the way we work is we actually develop different models, and we're trying to compete them off of each other and figure out constantly which one's the best one. So much like a kind of competitive data science competition like, uh, like Kaggle runs, which is it's just a, a service that does that. Uh, or very similarly, this is how hedge funds work. So, you know, constantly trying to compete models to, to do prediction and see how you do. That's that's how we do it. So we, we have developed numerous ones of our own. That's awesome. Which are the currently winning ones. Yeah, that's great. And what's been your biggest learning lesson from really diving into machine learning uh, developing your own model sets, working with AWS. I mean, look, half of the, I mean, but part of this is about insurance. The other part is about tech, right? So, you know, in the, in the tech sphere, what, what's been the big painful learning lessons? You got to basically build the plane while you fly it, or, or rather you're, you're building the roads as you're driving them. So, I mean, like, this really wouldn't have been possible, you know, 10 years ago, which is what's, which was what's incredible. You know, my, my colleagues who worked some of these big, you know, this is kind of classic innovator's dilemma. Like, you know, you might ask, well, the reinsurers have a ton of money. Why can't they do it? But, you know, given an, a, a piece of knowledge, colleagues who worked in technology at one of the big reinsurers recently, you know, said, hey, I want us to go from running 100,000 models, uh, simulations to a million simulations. Team, what, what do we need to do to do that? said, well, that's going to take about six months to build out the, the server infrastructure to, to do it. Like I said, we're running 650 billion or 600 billion simulations at the moment in, on AWS. So it's just that ability to, to build natively into a machine learning cloud-based system versus having to handle 20-year-old infrastructure. So what else we learned? I mean, like, yeah, you're, the other thing, though, is while a lot of that's there, there isn't just plug and play systems. And so we're, we, you, know, you have to build the infrastructure that's 
cleaning all of this data, making sense of it, putting it through what we call ETL pipelines, building data libraries that then our data science team can just easily access, model, uh, and, and improve upon. So it, it is an engineering feat uh, as well uh, and as a, as a data science feat. And, uh, and some of that work is just boring. I mean, we basically had to spend six months cleaning the data sets and putting them into the format that would make sense for us before we could really even get started which is a great head start. You know, a lot of this data is open source, like to my old job, like um, the vast, we do have some private data sets now and we've been building our own, which is called downscaling, but the vast majority starts with the data that's been available by NASA and NOAA uh, over the last, you know, 30 years, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, that is incredible. And, and thank, thank the Lord we have satellites, right? I mean, satellites yeah. are what led to so much of the uh, modeling data and satellite imagery data that you're, you're consuming now. And 100%. of course, satellites are getting far, far higher resolution uh, data than they used to. And they're putting a lot, lot more sensor arrays on satellites. So the future is very bright in that regard. Rob? Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, I, I love this story. And I, I love that element, right, that this wasn't possible 10 years ago in, in the technological innovation and leaps. And I think this applies in many different uh, aspects, right? Just that whole idea of uh, cloud computing, software as a service, the ability to use AI and ML um, sensors, right? Of, of, of streaming data coming in that we've never had before that are at a much more atomic or granular level than ever before. So I'm super excited that you're able to capitalize on some of these kind of broad trends that I've been talking about for a long time. And let's talk about the reinsurance aspect about this. You, you kind of alluded to it a little bit before, but so AIR, RMS, right? There's kind of these traditional cat modeling firms that have been in this space for 30 years or more, but a lot of reinsurers, they're going to look at their one in 100, one in 250, one in 500, you know, exceedance probabilities, things like that. And those are the basis of which they're evaluating their, you know, exceedance, their, their primary insurers that the, they're placing bets around the world. You know, there's been some innovation. I think there's been some use of aerial imagery and, you know, things like you know, detecting, you know, uh, roofs that are in poor, poor condition and things like that over time. But tell us a little bit about that reinsurance aspect. So you're not just doing the modeling, but you're actually providing capital, right, to kind of um, uh, these risks. So tell us about that aspect of it. Happily. I love getting under the hood on this stuff. So to back up a list, you mentioned RMS and ARR in a lot of respect to them. It really came around about 20, 25 years ago and, and brought a lot of innovation to the industry at that time. And these are the traditional big cap modelers. But a couple of things happened as they came up and they, they take a traditional SaaS model. They're, they're essentially saying, hey, we're selling you the modeling as a service. The reinsurers, meanwhile, right, in 20, 25 years ago, they're like, hey, we want to improve profit margins. How do we do that? Oh, are these are big actuarial departments are, are really expensive. Hey, look, there are these new firms that are coming along selling it as SaaS. I'll start reducing my big expense on actuarials and, I'll, uh, and I can and outsource more and more of this. Classic horizontalization of an industry, right? And our take on that is what has happened now is every reinsurer uses one model for fires across the entire state, which is not good from a competition point of view, or particularly when that model proves to be wrong, as we learned in 2016, 17, right? And 18, like that. It's like, oh, this isn't right anymore. Now suddenly everyone's out. Uh, so classic horizontalization has essentially led to a, a breakdown in innovation. And you can kind of see what happens there. It's like, it, it also creates this, this lack of, in, this breakdown of incentives, we think, right? And so what happens is if you lose, if ARR RMS lose a bunch of money for the reinsurers one year, they still say, hey, man, here's our bill. 
and they don't really have another option. They got to go back to him the next year right now. So I think that's a problem, right? And so we think you you got to vertically integrate again, much like we've seen, you know, Elon do and Tesla and SpaceX and things, right? Different different industries, but that's essentially been a huge part of the value chain there. And same thing here, like if you can realign incentives, it, it's a better model. So we build an MGA, right? And we and first, and what we and then we also build us are building a small balance sheet. Uh, to invest directly alongside the the big reinsurers. And we say, hey, look, man, like we have skin in the game right along with you. If our models are wrong, we're going to lose actually proportionally way more money than you are to your balance sheet. Therefore, you know, we're putting our, our money where our mouth is, as they say. And similarly, as always, we, one of the things we always say too is like, if, if you... If you really developed a model that you thought could trend gold prices, why would you sell that for $10,000 a month to to a hedge funds, right? Like, wouldn't you put your own money behind if you really believed in it, right? So that's that's the place we take. And then look, the last part of it all is like, like RMS just sold to to Moody's, which is its own problem. Um, but but it sold for three bill, right? And they make about 300 million a year. That's the the biggest player there is. Right now, from a venture back perspective, that's actually not that exciting, right? If you can, if the biggest player is getting to 300 million a year in revenue, like I was saying, like I'm, I'm much more interested in the 400 billion dollar industry sitting right behind it and making that a lot better. So the reinsurance industry. So that's that's some of our take on that space. I, I want to give them the respect they deserve, which they really improved a ton about 20 years ago and brought a whole new layer and level of modeling to the industry. But I think this this kind of horizontalization has served its time and we got to we gotta build a different model. So like I said, we, we went took the MGA approach. Now we have our own uh, small balance sheet um, as well. We're building that out at the moment to invest right alongside. That's great. I love that, Nat. I love that. Yeah. And to your point, there's actually a great article out there called In Nature's Casino that was in New York Times Magazine back in 2007 by Michael Lewis, if you're a Michael Lewis fan. And I think I've oh, talked yeah. about this on this podcast before. We'll make sure we get a link in the show notes. But um, he talks about the advent of catastrophe modeling from Hurricane Andrew. That's right. And if you can believe it, prior to the early 90s, people just looked at right the historical occurrence of hurricanes. And if you didn't have a hurricane in the last five years, it wasn't in your experience period, then we kind of assume that there's you know not much risk. And that's clearly not the right way to write catastrophic risk. That's fine for plumbing leaks and things like that, that are the law of large numbers occurrences, which you kind of uh, you know referred to earlier. But it just feels like what you're doing is not the next generation, the next generation. You're not just doing the incremental improvement upon these cat models that we've had over the last 30 years, but you're actually taking it to a whole nother level. Yeah, totally. I, I I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but in the depths of the reinsurance industry, they're called sort of the, the classes of. So after like, after Hurricane Andrew, you have the, the class of 94, I think it was 94, which is like Renri comes about because after a big catastrophe, you, it, it creates this dislocation in the pricing and it allows for a new form to come in and, and, and innovate, right? And we can kind of get into that. And that's why we started, one of the main reasons we started in wildfire, because um, there's been such price dislocation there. And then you have the XL Catlin after after uh, 9-11, right? And, uh, and so you got the class there and then you got the class after Hurricane Katrina. Um, so each time, I think, you know, after 2008, you got Arch and, and building out mortgage modeling. So you've got these, after big crisis, someone comes in and goes, you know, I, I think we're not doing this right anymore and I've got a better way to do it. And, and they tend to make a lot of money doing it. And even more importantly, or maybe, you know, as importantly, they bring stasis back to the market that has gone, you know, haywire, bring stasis back to the pricing. It's fascinating. We never talked about category classes, but uh, that is, uh, it's a real thing. 
And uh, yeah. it, it certainly, uh, you know, catastrophe always brings about opportunity in all markets, by the way, not just insurance. You know, there's always uh, huge uh, spikes and swings in the construction market after catastrophes because you have material shortages, then you have labor shortages, then you have rebuild, then you have repair. I mean, so there's certainly those those cycles drive a lot of other business. And I mean, Harvey in Houston drove a ton of change right. in the insurance markets, the ratings. I mean, it created just a, a whole set of dislocation in, in Houston as well. Yeah. So fascinating. Well, Rob, you already covered one of your news stories. Nat, it's a, a good good discussion about what you're doing over there at uh, at Kettle. Rob, you already covered your first news story. What, what else do you have this week? Yeah, so I've got one other one um, that caught my eyes. Uh, this is a Swiss Re. Speaking of reinsurers, it was announced as investing in Paytem's insurance business. So uh, Paytem specializes in digital payment systems, e-commerce, and finance, but they're planning to leverage their existing customer base and start offering insurance products and uh, developing new products and solutions. And um, so Swiss Re is making a, excuse me, $123 million investment. Uh, ultimately, it's estimated that Swiss Re will own about a quarter of the company. And, you know, digital payments isn't something we've talked ab- about a ton yet uh, on the podcast, James, but it's definitely an area that's uh, heating up. I, I hear a ton in the payment space. Um, we see a lot, of course, on the crypto front, as well as, you know, central bank digital currencies now are gaining a lot of uh press and, and traction. China's issuing theirs and several other countries are looking at it. So um, I think we're going to see more and more kind of in this payment space. Buy now, pay later is also super popular in, in 2021. So anyway, it's just a validation, I guess, of a trend that we've already been seeing from a, a big player out there, Swiss Re. And they're not just you know funding them, right? But they're actually taking an investment stake. Yeah, well, fintech and insuretech are, are inextricably intertwined, and buy now, pay later is a massive deal right now. Wall Street Journal did a wonderful podcast covering it, explaining it, running into, you know, diving on each of the different pay, you know, buy now, pay later, major players in the buy now, pay, pay later. And, you know, you, you can't talk about insuretech without talking about fintech because they're so tightly coupled, uh, and it's been really interesting to see what's going on there, for sure, uh, Rob. I had one this week, which I thought was pretty interesting. Insuretech investment surpasses 10 billion dollars for the first time <laughs> i was like oh dear lord this is from insuretechnews.com and it was a uh, a pretty staggering um they they covered this uh insuretech news covered it from uh insurance insider and uh insurance insider is talking about the the massive amount of investment that has flowed in to the insuretech space insuretech that they spelled i-n-s-u-r-t-e-c-h and just to be clear i am firmly in the i in the e-camp. I, I just want to say it. I'm in the e-camp. InsureTech Connect has an E in Insure, I-N-S-U-R-E. InsureTech Geek has an E. So I'm in the e-camp of InsureTech. One of these days, somebody's going to have to settle that. But uh, I certainly hope they're in the e-camp. I would just argue that since the largest event in the world has an E, it's got an E. But uh, that's neither here nor there. $10.5 billion in the first three quarters of 2021 which is just a staggering amount of investment going into InsurTech. And of course, you know, Rob, uh, the, it's led to a whole lot of interviews on, the, on this podcast with new technology companies and a whole lot of work for you helping sort it all out, right? Yeah. And I've spoke with, um, of course, I, I speak with startups all the time, but I, I spoke to several this week that uh, every single one of them I was excited about. Totally different you know, value props, totally different geographies, uh, different backgrounds. But yeah, uh, it's just uh, the, the floodgates are open and um, I think it's going to lead to a, a ton more innovation in this space. Obviously, this is a, a great capper with uh, Nat and learning about what you guys are doing at Kettle this week. 
Yeah, and Nat, it's uh, thank you for coming on and, and talking with us on the show. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, you said it best, right? If you can sell a small component to somebody for them to try and figure it out, or you can do it yourself. And obviously, you chose the we're going to go into the market ourselves rather than just build tools for existing reinsurance providers. That's right. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, Nat, thank you for being on the show today. And again. You can find out more information about Kettle, I'm guessing, at ourkettle.com, correct? That's correct. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really, it was a blast. Yeah, Nat, thanks for being on the uh, Insure Tech Geek podcast. And again, check out uh, Kettle and what they're doing with data and reinsurance. Rob uh, Galbraith, again, uh, as always, good to chat with you, brother. Likewise, James. Uh, I can't believe it's already November. Uh, headed to the home stretch here in 2021. <laughs> and I got to say, go Astros. We'll probably know by the time this is out whether mm. they win or lose a uh, World Series, I, but go Astros. Exactly, right? As we record this, they're tied one and one. So uh, let's let's see if our Texas team can uh, beat up that Atlanta team. But uh, it's all it's all good. And thank you out there for listening. And uh, in listener land, this has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge, jbknowledge.com. All about tech that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, and Kara dalton our creative producer. And thank you for joining us. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. Talk to you next week. <laughs>